Hey, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope this message helps you grow in your walk with Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry, visit theroadfc.org and click the giving link. Uh, what I want to do, though, is uh, first recap where we were last week. And what we learned last week is that we learned uh, that there are really, broadly speaking, two kinds of justice. Uh, one is retributive justice. And retributive justice says this, a crime has been committed, so what punishment is necessary to pay for the crime? Uh, and the truth is, is if you want retributive justice, uh, it is there in the scripture. Uh, but more often is the second kind of justice, which is uh, restorative justice. And the Bible is deeply concerned with restorative justice. In fact, if you look at the instances of the Hebrew word for justice, which is the Hebrew word mishpat, uh, then the majority of those uh, occurrences re- actually refer to not retributive justice, but restorative justice. And restorative justice says this, harm has been done, And so what healing is necessary to restore the relationship. Uh, So retributive justice, a crime has been committed, what punishment needs to be doled out. Restorative justice is harm has been done, so what now, what healing needs to take place in order for a relationship to be restored. Uh, We also learned that the biblical standard of justice is recognizing the image of God in each person. Uh, That any time that we Uh, ignore or we rob someone of the image of God that is in them, uh, then we are doing uh, injustice. Uh, And anytime we recognize the image of God in that person, uh, then we are uh, doing justice. Uh, And so the the biblical foundation for justice begins right in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, where it says that all of humanity is created in God's image. And so if you take that uh, if you take that understanding of justice and you move it uh, to its natural and logical conclusion, then the ideal just society, according to the biblical vision of justice, is one in which all people are given their rights and their dignity as God's image bearers. That sounds like a pretty good world, doesn't it? If we could all just do that, <laughs> that would be great. Uh, but the truth is we don't do this, right? We create societies Uh, whether it's intentionally, often unintentionally, uh, where the weak or the vulnerable are taken advantage of, exploited, or have their rights as God's image bearers ignored or overlooked. And so what the Bible does in response to that is uh, it shows us that there it has particular concern for justice for uh, the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, and the poor, uh, what, what theologians have called the quartet of the vulnerable. Uh, that as you look at the, the biblical vision of justice, it is most concerned with justice for the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, and the poor. Uh, it's because these are the ones who are at greatest risk when society is structured to advantage the wealthy and the powerful. Uh, now, I had a really great conversation um, as a result of last week's message, and the person I was talking to was asking some really compelling questions about this quartet of the vulnerable, uh, and, and beginning to say, well, what about this person that I, that I know and have a relationship, and what about this person uh, who might fit or be uh, in that, um, that it might be true of them to say that they're one of these most vulnerable in society? Uh, and so beginning to talk with them, and, and it came out, uh, I had a chance to explain to them this, and I want to just pass this on, that the Old Testament Scripture identifies those four groups as the most vulnerable uh, in a world where wealth and well-being was dependent upon land ownership. 
In other words, in the Old Testament, if you did not own land, or if you were not connected to a family or someone who did own land, you had no means for wealth or well-being in your life. And so what the Old Testament does is in that kind of world, in that kind of society, uh, that is literally structured around land ownership, then those who were most vulnerable were those who were cut off from any family, the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, or those who simply could not, had no means to purchase land, the poor. And so in the Old Testament world where land ownership was everything, it was those who were the most vulnerable. What our task is as the people of God now is with the help of the Holy Spirit to begin to discern who are the most vulnerable in our own society and begin to seek justice for them, right? Uh, And I think that the four groups mentioned in the scriptures are a pretty good start. Uh, so it's not to say that, oh, that doesn't count, let's, let's, let's move that aside, but rather let's understand why those folks were vulnerable and use that as a means of understanding how, how is our society structured in such a way that makes certain groups vulnerable as well. And so, so for example, uh, by the time of the New Testament, the world had changed, right? Uh, the, it had changed from uh, people living mostly in the country to now people were gathering in cities and urban centers. In fact, as you look at the Apostle Paul in all of his writings, he was writing to Christian communities that largely were inside and living in urban centers. And so with that change, the most vulnerable in society might also be different. And we actually see this uh, bear witness in the scriptures themselves. Because in particular, what Jesus begins to do is he begins to advocate for children in a way that would have been totally unheard of because he recognized that in his culture, it were the children who were most vulnerable. And I think that could be true for a lot of (laughs) most, right? So what Jesus does is he begins to speak about children in a way uh, that no one had ever heard of before. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 14, Jesus says, let the little children come to me. A chapter earlier in Matthew 18, he says, unless you become like a child, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And so the point simply is, with the help of the Holy Spirit, the church is to identify those who are made vulnerable based on how our own culture and our own society is structured. Does that make sense? Um, and I think that's, uh, that's really, really important work for the people of God. It's also really difficult work, right? It, it, it's difficult sometimes to just let the scales fall off of our eyes enough so that we can see the, the, the folks who are made vulnerable by the way the society is structured, particularly if that societal structure benefits us, Okay? So it's difficult, number one, just to identify, and then number two, it can be difficult just on the basis of even once we see it, now we have to kind of do something about it. Now we kind of have to move into action and begin thinking about what, what lifestyle changes, what sort of things need to change in my own life in order uh, to speak for the vulnerable. So, uh, so with that kind of as a base and a foundation, I, I invite you to, to, to look at Luke chapter 14. I want to read verses 7 through 24. Uh, as a way of, of kind of launching us into this discussion of what is the relationship between the ministry, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and justice as we're coming to understand it uh, from the biblical vision. Uh, so you can uh, turn to or click to or look up at the screen uh, to Luke chapter 14. I want to begin reading with verse 7. And just to give you a little bit of context, this is Jesus at a Pharisee's house. Uh, Pharisees uh, were, were Israelite experts in the law, 
uh, and who were uh, the self-proclaimed law police. So if they ever saw you breaking any kind of Jewish law, they were the first ones to say, you can't do that, right? Uh, and I'm, I'm pretty sure that's what the Greek says is, so, uh, so that's how it works. So that's the Pharisees, and Jesus is there at a Pharisee's house, and he's having a meal. That's the setup. Uh, so let's read uh, Luke chapter 14, beginning with verse 7. Now when he, that is Jesus, uh, noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told the group this parable. Now when someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited you will come to you and say, give this man your seat. And then humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, sit at the lowest place so that when the host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all of your fellow guests. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Then Jesus turned to the host, and he says this. When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or relatives, or your rich neighbors. For if you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and then you will be blessed. For although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Now when one of those who was at the table heard this, he said to Jesus, uh, blessed is the kingdom, uh, blessed is the man who will eat at the feast of the kingdom of God. And Jesus replied, a certain man. Jesus, Jesus is like so dodgy like this, right? It's like, you, Jesus, you know, like he makes a statement. He's trying to make, prove a point. Yeah, but Jesus this, you know, blessed will be the people who will buy, you know, dine at the banquet of the kingdom of God. And then Jesus just like goes in and continues the story. And he like basically turns it up to 11, right? So, so he's like, he's doing all this stuff. And then Jesus just like totally cranks the volume to 11. And, and this is what he says. He says, a certain man was preparing a great banquet uh, and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, his servants came to tell those who had been invited, come, for now everything is ready. In other words, in this culture, it wasn't like Tuesday at six o'clock. It was like when the cow is good and fat, right? So like that's how, that's how, the, that's how you plan a dinner party. Uh, it's just like when this guy's fattened up and ready for y'all, then I'm gonna send somebody to say it's ready. Uh, so, that's what, so that's what it was. Come, for now everything is, is ready. But they all alike made the same excuse. The first said, uh, I, I have just bought a field and I must go and see it, so please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen. I'm on my way to try them out, so please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married. I can't come. <laughs> come on, priorities, right? <laughs> now the servant came back and he reported uh, this to the master and then the owner of the house became angry and he ordered the servant, then go out quickly into the streets and into the alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. That, those four ought to sound very familiar in this passage. Sir, the servant said, what you have ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads, the country lanes, and make them come in so that my house will be full. For I tell you, not one of those men who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. This is a really, really compelling, interesting, powerful trilogy of stories that Jesus tells. 
Uh, and actually what Luke is doing is he's trying to show us a little bit of what justice looks like. Uh, and remember mishpat, the Hebrew just for, word for justice, uh, has this connotation to it of uprightness or straightness so that mishpat or justice is making things straight or bringing things back to right. Uh, and so what this trilogy does is it says that justice, true mishpat, is being willing to disadvantage myself in order to give advantage to the vulnerable. And, he tell, and, and Jesus is showing this, and he's teaching this, and the, the, the gospel of Luke, the writer, uh, he's showing us by, by way of his writing that this is what real, real justice is. And so first, he records Jesus telling a story that encourages guests at a wedding to not make any assumptions about their own privilege or their own importance, right? And maybe importance is a better word there. Don't make any assumptions about how important you are, but rather humble yourself and sit at the lowest seat. Uh, and then the second story, Jesus churns up the volume and he says that, that if you are hosting a dinner, then don't invite your friends or people of wealth because they could easily repay you for your hospitality. But instead, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. And Jesus says, for they have no ability to repay you. Uh, again, just like this quartet, just like the Old Testament quartet of the vulnerable, the, the, the implication is not so much the specific list, uh, but rather the point is those who are vulnerable. And in this culture, the crippled, the lame, the blind, were often those who were isolated from community. Uh, further, it was, it was a quite popular belief that those that had disability, was, was a, their disability was a result of their own sin. And so if you were crippled, blind, or lame, it was you were often kind of isolated, cast out from community, and, and, and barred off as a sinner, okay? And so the instructions are, in order to live out this parable, the banquet host must disadvantage himself, that is, place himself at the risk of defilement. That's how they would have understood this or seen this. That I'm placing myself at the risk of defilement by inviting those who are crippled, lame, poor, blind. So he would have been disadvantaging himself in order to advantage others. And what he finds is, or what Jesus says in the parables that he will find is that notions of blessing were all wrong. And that by inviting those who cannot pay him back, he actually receives greater blessing than if he had just surrounded himself with his comrades and friends. If nothing else, this certainly illustrates God's heart for those who are on the margins of society, amen? But I love what uh, one, one commentator had to say as I was researching this, and it's up on the screen, uh, so hopefully we've got somebody that can pop it up there. Uh, this quote is on the screen, but here's, here's one, what one commentator on Luke has to say about this. Uh, he says, such advice would have sounded quite strange to the ears of many of Jesus' contemporaries. To their way of thinking, the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind are those from whom God has withheld blessing. In all likelihood, it was thought that their afflictions were a result of sin, and so these people, along with the Gentiles, would be the last people to enter the kingdom of God. 
And so why should anyone invite them to a feast? To eat with such people could result in religious defilement. Therefore, the pious Israelite would quite naturally desire table fellowship with others of similar piety. But Jesus, however, does not share this narrow, self-righteous view. His proclamation of the good news declares that even the lowly and outcast may be included in the kingdom of God. And nowhere is this idea seen more vividly than in the parable that follows. Which is the story of a man who sends invites to his friends, but they're all unable to make it, each with their own excuse. And so the servant goes out to the streets to gather the poor and the crippled from the streets. And the proclamation is this, that no one who was invited, only those who were gathered, are going to share in the master's banquet. Only those who were brought in unexpectedly. Now, I think we'd be doing uh, some injustice to the Bible to understand this passage that, that only those on the margins of society will enjoy uh, all the fullness of the kingdom of God when it comes. But rather what Jesus is trying to do is he's trying to, to break us out of our own kind of narrow-mindedness that only the people who are uh, important like me, privileged like me, look like me, are going to be into the fold of the kingdom of God. What Jesus is trying to do is expand the boundaries, expand our imaginations, uh, and trying to move us into a realization that even those that we have cast out, God has not forgotten. That even those for whom we have said, surely they are not made in the image of God, they have no value, right? in a society that measures value based on productivity. If you aren't productive, you aren't valuable. Perhaps this is why in our culture, the elderly are often ignored. They've stopped being productive. Right? And so what Jesus is trying to do is he's trying to shake us out of our preconceived notions of who's valuable, of who's in and who's out, and all of these kinds of things. And, and, and he absolutely turns it up to 11 with this parable, and it should just be like in the face of those Pharisees and maybe us too. But I want, you, I want you also to notice the order of the parables. Jesus is absolutely genius. First, he says, he says to the folks, don't assume your own position of importance and privilege. Don't make any assumptions about how important you are. Let's start there. And it seems to me that Jesus is often doing this. He, he's, he's calling us to be introspective a lot, right? Uh, it's like, uh, don't point out the speck in someone else's eye when you have a log in your own. <laughs> I heard someone say, in fact, this, this week, that we often say, uh, as the people of God, we say, uh, Love the sinner, but hate the sin. And, and this person turned, flipped that on its head and said, love the sinner, hate your own sin. It's pretty good. 
right? So it seems that Jesus is, is very consistently always trying to move us inward, introspective. And so if he's working on these Pharisees to try to expand their imaginations of who's in, who's out, who's included in the kingdom of God, the first thing he does is don't make any assumptions about how important you are. Then the second thing he says, in fact, if you're hosting, be willing to disadvantage yourself and invite the vulnerable. And then third, recognize that the most vulnerable and marginalized of society will enjoy the master's banquet. When many of those who are important will be so consumed with their own affairs that they will miss it. Justice is being willing to disadvantage yourself to the good of others, and it can be incredibly difficult. And the Gospel of Luke, in particular, of all the Gospels, actually invites us in to see this uh, and invites us into the journey of Jesus' life in order to point out that this is precisely what Jesus does and encourages others to do in ministry. In fact, the the Gospel of Luke, more than any of the others, is showing us how Jesus' life is concerned for those who are marginalized. Each of the gospel writers has their own kind of flavor, their own theme, and and certainly this is the theme in Luke. And so uh, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry in Luke chapter 4, he announces his plans for ministry, and I want to read that to us. I don't think I let the folks know to put it on the screen, so just listen. Uh, It's not very long, but Luke chapter 4, beginning with verses 18 and 19, says this. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, to the recovery of sight for the blind, and to release the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now you could certainly spiritualize each one of these, right? That, uh, that our, that our uh, oppression or we are enchained not by, uh, not by a physical cell maybe, but by our sin and Jesus has come to rescue us from that. You can take these both on a physical, literal, actual level. You could spiritualize these. All of those things would be true. What I wanna point out this morning is that Jesus says at the very end, I have come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And you know what that is? That is jubilee language. Do you, know what, do you remember what jubilee is? In the Old Testament, jubilee is like the Old Testament version of a party. <laughs> in, the, in the Old Testament, the year of the Lord's favor, jubilee, uh, which is, that's what jubilee was called, the year of the Lord's favor. Jubilee was an Israelite practice of making everything upright again. That on the year of jubilee, that's every seven Sabbath cycles, so every 49 years, land was restored back to the families that had sold it in order to pay off debt. And so if any time during that 49 years you were in debt and you needed to sell some land to, in order to pay off that debt, and 49 years later, that land was returned to you. Debt was forgiven in the year of Jubilee. What debt do you have now? Don't worry about it. That's pretty good. How many of you would like to vote for a year of Jubilee? Let's just call like the banks and just be like, hey, let's have some Jubilee up in here, right? So you, and you go ahead and call your banker and say just exactly that. Let's have some Jubilee up in here and see what, see what they say. Um, so <laughs> also it was like if you, had, um, if you had sold any slaves in order to repay debt, those slaves were set free. Right? So it's like, I'm, I'm, I'm think, put yourself in the position of a slave. You're with one family. You're sold to another family. And then if you had been sold to pay off debt, you're set free. That's the year of Jubilee. 
And Jesus says when he's announcing his ministry that he is coming to bring the year of the Lord's favor, this jubilee language is, a, is returning everyone to their mishpat, to their justice, putting everything back to right again. And what follows after Luke 4, and you can, get the, you can actually get a sense of this if you do nothing but read the headings in the Gospel of Luke. So if you're like crunched for time, read the headings. Now, that, I don't know how much that counts, but that's good. That's still something, right? So, so count the, look at the headings, and this becomes clear, that Jesus begins to heal people of physical illness. And remember, remember that the sick were marginalized and thought to be sick as a result of sin. So Jesus, in his healing, is what is he doing? He's actually restoring them back to community. And then Jesus casts out demons. In other words, Jesus is restoring the image of God in people where it had become so scarred through possession. And then Jesus even raises a little girl from the dead, demonstrating that death itself is being conquered through the rule of Christ. Like, it's like Jesus breaks in on the scene, announces this jubilee language, and then begins his ministry, and everywhere he goes are little pockets of mishpat. Everything is being put back to right where he goes. Everything is being made straight again. Everything is being put back to right. It's this beautiful ministry. And really what I'm trying to say to you this morning is that Jesus becomes the first human to live out God's ideal for justice. He is the picture of justice and righteousness in the way that he advocates for the poor and the oppressed and the destitute, in the way that he performs miracles that heal body and spirit, in the way that he restores the isolated back to community. He's giving us over and over and over again this picture of what justice looks like. And ultimately, it is disadvantaging ourselves for the good of others. In other words, the biblical vision of justice is way beyond charity. There's this guy named Bruce Waltke. He says this. It'll be up on the screen. The righteous are those who are willing to disadvantage themselves to the advantage of their community. The wicked are those who are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. This is not easy stuff. This is not like a pill that just, just goes down real nice and easy, right? It's hard, but this is the biblical vision of justice. Yes, yeah, yeah. Here we go, is it up? Bruce Waltke says, the righteous are those who are willing to disadvantage themselves to the advantage of the community. The wicked are those who are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. And ultimately, if we want to really talk about the ministry, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, in order to under, and his relationship to justice, what we need to understand is this is precisely what Jesus does. This Waltke quote is, is precisely what Jesus then goes and does. He disadvantages himself to the advantage of the community, with the community being you and I and the entire world. Because we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that justice deals with evil, right? When is the pastor going to talk about how justice deals with evil? Right now. Because <laughs> let's not, justice isn't just like this floaty sort of like, oh, yeah, right, yay thing, yeah? It's like justice is how we deal with evil. And that's why we love superhero movies and Justice League. Evil has been done and needs to be dealt with. So put on a costume and deal with it. <laughs> right? 
And so that's, that's what we're like, how does justice deal with evil? So we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that justice deals with evil. And God's restorative justice, what I want to proclaim to you today, is that in fact God's restorative justice does deal with evil, but in ways that we may not expect. Because in justice, or in Jesus, in Jesus, love and justice meet. The psalmist says it this way. The psalmist dreams of a day when love and justice will kiss. And this is precisely what happens at the cross of Jesus Christ, that love and justice meet. Through the cross, God's justice is carried out and evil is defeated. But it is defeated by way of his love and his forgiveness. You see, all of the injustice of the world, all of the social injustice, all the political injustice, all the cultural injustice, all the personal injustice, all the moral injustice, all the religious injustice are brought upon Jesus on the cross. And he responds to that, all of that injustice by allowing all of that sin to come into him and come onto him and for that evil to bring him to his death. He absorbs it all and he enters into death and then he releases the power of sin and death by way of resurrection, amen? This is the Christian message. This is the message that evil has been defeated in Christ on the cross. That in Jesus, the very love of God expressed to all of humanity is also the means by which evil is defeated. Love and justice meet in Jesus. I thought you guys would be more excited about that. <laughs> I was teaching a class this weekend called Tracing the Story of God. It's an intro to biblical theology class, and we basically just try to look at the entire biblical story through different kinds of lenses and, and, and try to understand themes as they grow and progress and ultimately are fulfilled in Christ through the biblical narrative. Doesn't that sound like fun? Isn't that like a way you want to spend your weekend? Uh, and so I was teaching this class. We were wrestling with some of the material. And uh, one of the students said, I believe in love. But I also believe in justice. And what I realized is that for this student, it appears that love and justice are kind of two sides of, the God, of God's coin. I believe in love, but I also believe in justice. And I want to encourage you today that love and justice are not two sides of God's coin. Because in Jesus Christ on the cross, love and justice kiss. They meet. And we learn that God's justice is carried out by way of love. Here's another quote from uh, N.T. Wright. This is a phenomenal book. I encourage all of you to read it. If you have any interest in the, what's called the problem of evil, that is, how can evil exist in the world when God is good? If you have any interest in how God deals with the problem of evil, evil and the justice of God, should be, you should read it this afternoon after the life group kickoff. 
So, uh, but he says this, N.T. Wright says this, what the gospels offer us is not a philosophical explanation of evil, like what it is or why it's there, nor does it offer us a set of suggestions for how we might adjust our lifestyles so that evil will mysteriously disappear from the world. What the story does tell is of an event in which the living God deals with it. That is to say, I want us to hear this, and I want to understand this today. Jesus perfectly embodies restorative justice by dying on behalf of the guilty. We are the guilty. We are the ones who have done injustice. We've done injustice to one another, right? We've done injustice to God. We, we've done in, un, injustice around in the society. All of us are guilty of this, and yet he, he dies on behalf of the guilty in order to offer to the guilty righteousness for those who will place the, his, their, their trust in him. And then having been declared righteous, that is, in right relationship, uh, then we, that even though we didn't deserve it, we are then to go and advocate for the justice of others. That you and I, all of us, if we will call on Jesus by faith, are the recipients of restorative justice. Restorative justice, not retributive justice. God is not angry at you. And I don't think that helps when I yell it. <laughs> Let me try again. God is not angry with you. Is that better? That's better. <laughs> it's just like, that hit me like a ton of bricks. Like, I am literally yelling at these people that God is not mad at them. This is so bad. Like, I promise I'm an excellent father, right? Like, I never, I never do that with my kids. I love you! So stop it! <laughs> oh man, like God is not angry at you. <laughs> that we, I think this is such a beautiful message that we are the recipients of restorative justice. And the invitation of the gospel is then to go and work for the restorative justice of others that we have been the benefit of. And how incongruent it is for us to receive restorative justice and then call for retributive justice against the people we just don't like. Yeah? Here's another quote from N.T. Wright. He puts it this way. He says, The call of the gospel is for the church to implement the victory of God in the world through suffering love. The call of the gospel is for the church to implement the victory of God in the world through suffering love. And again, I don't, I don't want to make any, I don't want to pretend at all that this is easy or simple. It's incredibly difficult. But we need to understand the Bible's vision of what justice is so that we can lean into that, we can push into that and continue to explore so I just simply want to say this to close. Through Jesus, things have been made upright between me and God. And this motivates me, should motivate me, to go and make things upright between me and my neighbor. And so with a discerning heart that is led by the Spirit, we are to advocate for the most vulnerable of our society. We are to challenge ourselves to come to a place where we can see the image of God in people, even the marginalized of our society, even our enemies, even those who have wronged us. For when we do this, 
we will be a picture of the new creation that has begun in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray for God's help in all of this. Lord, today we, we recognize that we, in so many ways, fall short of this call. And so, God, our prayer today is simply that you would help us. We need your discerning spirit to be able to see who are the most vulnerable in our society. God, we need your courage to, to move and to act once we have eyes to see. God, we need your strength to continue that work. When we are tired or frustrated or maybe just simply absorbed with all of our own business and responsibilities. And so God, in, in light of the difficulty of living this out, we are thankful for your grace and for your mercy. Um, and just pray, God, that you would help us personally, uh, that you would help us as the, the, as the people of God at Emmaus Road, that as the people of God called the church universal, that all together that we would be concerned about justice. And that we would come to understand the biblical vision of justice and how easy it is to slip into a desire only for retributive justice. So God, be with us in all these, in all these things, God. Give us your grace, your mercy, and your strength. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.